Whether it's for work or play, we rely on home internet so much these days. Being connected and staying connected has never been more important. So if you want reliable internet bought you at speed, switch to Aussie Broadband. It only takes a few minutes to sign up and their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Find out more at aussiebroadband.com.au. T's and C's apply. G'day guys and welcome back to the Dylan Friends podcast. Again, this week, huge guest, Australian one-day international captain, Aaron Finch. Finchie made his test debut for Australia in 2018. And he currently holds a record for two of the three highest individual scores in 2020 internationals. We touch on it all on the show, growing up in Colac, playing footy and cricket. His pathway to international cricket, including playing under-18s with the likes of Mark Murphy, Brett Delidio and David Warner. Finally getting his opportunity to be presented his baggy green and what it meant to him. His mindset shifts that's taken his game to the next level, travelling the world and of course some cricket sprays. I can't wait for you to hear it, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Don't forget that Dylan Friends podcast is now available on the YouTube channel as a vodcast, so make sure you subscribe and check it out. The link's in the bio. And guys, I've got to apologise. For the first three minutes, I stuffed up the recording. I absolutely butchered it. But don't worry, it comes good in about three to four minutes, so it'll be nice and smooth as soon as it kicks in. Let's go. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Strap yourselves in for some light-hearted and wholesome fun. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Aaron Finch, thank you so much for coming on the Dylan Friends podcast, mate. Uh, look, the captain of Australia, it's, it's a massive uh, honour to have you on the show. Um, it's a big podcast. I know you've heard a lot about it, but um, how's it feel, mate? Oh, thanks for having me. It's, it's great. I know a lot of the boys who have been on before, so... Looking forward to it, but I have heard that you've done a fair amount of digging and I don't know where that's going to end up. So I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit nervous, but thanks very, very much for having me. No, no stress at all, mate. Look, it's uh, look, you're a good man and we all know that, so there's not too much to, uh, to dig off on, mate. But I want to start at the start because it's, it's normally a good place. Um, growing up in Colac, a young man yeah. down there, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of country town, but it's coastal as well. What, is, what does one get up to down in Colac? Uh, Colac was a growing up there. It's, it's in the summer, footy and winter, nothing in between. There wasn't a huge amount. Like basketball wasn't big at the time. I mean, local footy clubs, then all clubs like like most places in the country. Um, you're sort of forty from Lawn, Borkey, Apollo Bay. So it was sort of really central in that regard. But I wasn't a beach beach man as such. But uh, yeah, footy and cricket. That that was my all the hell of a lot. So I just for Tuesday and Thursday trainings and, and Saturdays playing. It's awesome, man. Um, there's a football factory down there. Did you did you ever strap the boots on as a junior? I loved footy. I, I thought that footy was my number one. Um, I played a lot of my junior footy with Luke Hodge. Um, obviously, he was well, probably similar. Uh, I just chose cricket in the end. And, <laughs> that, and that's a joke. That, 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 that is a joke. Oh, you um, didn't play with him? Yeah, he was a gun. I did play with him, um, but... It, it was always going to be bloody good. And I was, I was fat, short, tubby legs. Um, didn't have many attributes to, to make an AFL footballer. Was there a defining moment in your career where you thought, well, look, maybe I'm just going to stick to cricket from now on? Not really, because I was, I was playing seniors when I was 15. Um, Mum always made me play the 17s in the morning because she said, you can't leave them hanging. You have to play under 17s and then... If you picked in the seniors, you can play that too. So I couldn't kick. In, I couldn't kick for goal. And as a forward, like on the run, I'd back myself to kick bananas and snaps all day. But a set shot, 
just scared the shit out of me and I could not kick it straight to save my life. I got jittery. Even to this day, if we're, if we're having a kick at training or something like that and all of a sudden someone stands on the mark, my legs just go to water. That's great. Mate, as a youngster, you've touched on it, playing a lot of cricket, um, dabbling in footy. But I hear, obviously, you're a very talented junior cricketer. Um, the Cricket Academy was something that all talented cricketers get into at a young age. How was that for you? I actually loved my time at the Cricket Academy. I know in, in my second year, there was a little bit of um, controversy there. But I think the first year, the first year that I went, I was straight from the Australian under-19s. They had... I was sort of, they, they tried to change it into a little bit of a finishing school. So young, really good young players who were already playing first-class cricket. Um, and then they added a couple of youngsters. And myself and Moses on Riggs were the two out of our under-19 years selected to go. And Moses didn't go. He got injured. So I was there training and playing with, with some really good young players. A lot had just started playing for Australia Ray and the odd one had been playing for Australia a little bit as well. So I had great memories of my first year. I remember we trained so bloody hard, harder than I'd ever trained in my life. But we also, as well, we're living in um, at Griffith Uni out at Mount Cravat. And you'd, you'd have little dorm rooms. So before to a dorm, basically single bed. Uni pub was there on campus as well. So, so the, boys, the boys cashed into that. And, but we, Tim, our head coach, and we, we trained so hard physically uh, and on our game. But... Geez, we made the most of it during that period as well. We, we, we loved it. You're listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. So, mate, while we're on your uh, topic of junior cricket, um, there's a lot of stories about this. And two of my good friends, which I know are your great friends and old teammates in cricket, is Brett Delidio and Mark Murphy. And these blokes rate themselves not only as footballers, but I'll tell you now, they rate themselves as cricketers. So uh, today I really yep. want to set the story straight. Um I'm pretty sure you were captain of this under-17s team that's infamous in so many ways. Yeah, we, I was captain. Uh, it was in Adelaide. can't remember exactly what year it was, but I remember it was stinking hot. It was, <laughs> it was brutal. But uh, we, we managed to... Yes, they, they were players, and they both had a very good, very good tournament. Uh, we beat New South Wales in the final, which had uh, Davey Warner, Moses Henriques. Uh, they, they were a very, very good side. And, and while well, we didn't draw... We, well, we drew. We drew with them, so we only had to do that because we finished top of the table, and um, we batted for days and didn't have to bowl for long. I heard you were rooming with Mark Murphy at this stage. Now, Mark obviously is, is the captain of the Blues. Is there what, what's your memories of rooming with him? Uh, very good, actually. We I remember that we used to um, we used to. Oh, he was he was obviously very fit, footy focused more than more than cricket. I suppose at that stage, you always knew he was going to be a footy player, but but also a very talented cricketer. Yeah, there was some there was some good times there. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know what you've got. <laughs> no, what, I, don't, what, I don't have anything. I'm just wondering. It must be some oh, good times. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> we'll move on. Now, anyway, <laughs> mate, um, the boys that again, obviously your teammates, they said they loved the tournament. It was good fun. But the only th- the only downside was the fact that you just kept bringing yourself into bowl all the time and gave yep. no one else a shot. Uh, kind of. I mean. When when you're under the pump as captain, like if you're going to go down on a sinking ship, <laughs> you, you go down making sure that you're totally in control of it. But I was very lucky. We had a great side at that time for for an under seventeen team. Um, very very good, and they both performed exceptionally well. I think. Can't remember if Brett was player of the tournament. Um, mm. uh, maybe Tom Cooper from New South Wales at the time was 
player of the tournament. I but haven't I haven't heard if Brett was player of the tournament. He, I'm, I'm sure he would have let me know because he's actually given me his stats of the tournament. <laughs> and if you know, if, obviously we know Brett Lydia well, but he can recall any stat that he's ever ever had in his career, footy right. and cricket. So apparently in that tournament, he made a 75, a 51 not out, and he made 85 in the final with you against David Warner's team. Right. I, I thought he got 100 in the final. Well, he said you got 100. Nah. Um, well, maybe that... I got a. I think I got one or two hundreds throughout, but uh, not in the final. I remember I got out first, first ball after lunch, caught first slip off David Warner by on leg spin, uh, and a bloke called Sean Dean who uh, was a, a gun underage player. He got two hundred in the final for Victoria. I thought Brett got a hundred in the final. Oh, maybe to get eighty five, but he, he had a very good tournament. Um, bowled fast. It, it was honestly, and and this. Oh, I mean, because Ben Stokes is an absolute gun and a superstar of the game. But sort of comparing them like, as top types of players, Brett was yeah. someone who, who probably batted a little bit lower but come in and really aggressive, ultra-aggressive, smacked them around and then had the ability with the ball to bowl fast but swing it both ways as well. He was, he was super talented. So just, just in that mould of player, don't, don't for one second pass <laughs> on to him that I, I compared him to Ben Stokes Mate, as a junior he, player. He is never going to forget that. He's going to chop this audio up and listen to it every <laughs> night before he goes to sleep. That's, honestly, that's something that he will live by for the rest of his life. No, nah, so similar type player. But, and Murph, was he, was he was a gun as well, middle-order player. Um, knocked him around as a lefty. Very, very good, but... Uh, I think from that tournament with the wickets Brett took, I, I think he made the Australian team, the Australian under-19 team, but then had to pull out because of draft camp or something right. like that. Well, that's where I get to next because I spoke to both of the boys before this and obviously doing my research on you. And the last thing I said to them was, who was better out of you and Murph or you and, <laughs> and you and Lids? And Brett said, when you make 85 or 100 on the big stage, you know where it is. Murph yeah. said that he was the only one who made the All-Australian out of that year. And Lids didn't. So, right. for you, maybe to, I'm confused with something there. Yeah, for you to maybe put this to bed, and I know that they're going to be hanging off the lips of this because this will finally put it to bed. And all the all the legends about these two, if you had to pick one to play in your team at their peak of their powers, Murphy or Delidio? Well, I reckon it was the semi final. Murph got a hundred um, to get us into the final, or the last round game, or something. We had to win. He got a hundred and borrowed my bat. I remember that and. <laughs> Got a hundred, and and as a professional player, if you lend someone your bat, the rule is they get to keep it if they get a hundred. Really? So there, there'll be times when, well, going back a bit, Davey Warner would just walk into the change rooms, and you'd get back in from the warm up, and your stickers would be off your bat, and he would have his stickers already on it, ready to go, and he'd walk out without ever hitting a ball with it, and just go and use it in a game. And the and the rule is, and it's widely known that if you get a hundred, you get to keep the bat. Um, it didn't quite work that way in junior cricket when you when, when you, you had, had to buy them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I, I think I was getting them for. I think I was sponsored by Kookaburra at the time. Uh, yeah, I would have been. I was from a young age. I was, but yeah, he didn't get to keep it. That's for sure. And, and then and then bred in the final. I think he knocked over a couple with the new ball as well. Big swingers knocked them over as well as getting eighty five or a hundred. Um, obviously eighty five if he if he remembers it like that. And oh. You have to pick question. one. You have to pick one. I'm always a bit impartial to an all-rounder. I, I think as a slogging all-rounder who can swing the ball, I think they're pretty invaluable. So I'd, I'd go with Brett. Oh, um, yeah, no. that, that, that pains me to say that, actually. That's, it's heartbreaking because Murph's going to take that to heart and Lids will never yep. live that down. You've actually made his life. 
I think, by saying that. He, I wouldn't be surprised if the great man's trying out for the, for the next Ashes because uh, he, he'd absolutely love it. The way he used to walk around when the, when the cricket balls and the bats came out at training up at the Giants, um, yeah, he, he definitely knew what he was doing. He's, but credit to him, not mate, that he, he, can, he can swing him. He's not that confident either when he gets the cricket ball or bat in his hand. Is he? <laughs> he loves it. He absolutely or when he gets his, loves it. Or when he gets his rig out or something like that. He's, <laughs> he's a good I man. I've, I've never met any any bloke at a young age with as much confidence as him in his own appearance. Oh, he, well, he's a handsome man and he's, he's you know, it's fair enough. If you've got it, you've got to flaunt it. But I'll just yeah, out true. of curiosity, who do, you, who do you support in the footy? Geelong. Oh, Geelong, okay. Yeah, okay. love well, the cats. You wouldn't have seen then um, one Friday night on the on the MCG one time when I took Brett Delidio to the square then, would you? Have you seen <laughs> that mark where I absolutely smashed him? No, I haven't. Oh, jeez. Can, can, you, can you roll the tape? Oh, don't worry about it. I'll make sure you've got it straight after the interview. Send through the YouTube link. Oh, I will, mate. I will. Don't worry about it. It's actually my screensaver on most of my devices. Um, mate, I want to talk about uh, the, just on the footy cricket sort of relationship of those guys. Yep. Is there any... I suppose we've touched on the best footy AFL players that uh, were good at cricket. Is there any other guys that were sort of like playing AFL now that you played against in, in cricket? Luke Hodge. Luke Hodge. Absolute superstar. Yeah. Um, like I said earlier, I played all my junior footy and cricket with him, family, friends, and he was he was an absolute gun cricketer. Um, bold, bold, absolute gas and smacked him as well. Yeah. Um, Amon Buchanan, he was, an, he was a gun Um Probably, probably not in the same league as Hodgie, and just in like he, he was just really talented. Yeah. Um, uh, my brother played against Jonathan Brown. Uh, him and Hodgie would play for Colac, and then Brownie would play for Warnable or South Warnable. Can't remember which one. And and he was also a, he was a up and coming superstar. Um, but I think it's like uh, most of them guys have the advantage of when they were 16, 17, they were just man-childs. They were yeah. huge. So they could bowl a bit quicker. They could hit it a bit further. So whether, whether that translates into a long career, you, you never know. But yeah. uh, they, they were all super talented. But Hodju, he was a he was an absolute gun. Um, not, I think he was picked for a couple of Victorian under-17s or under-19s teams and just had to knock them back because uh, it was footy camps and draft camps and stuff like that. What about on the other on the other term? I suppose cricketers that were good at footy. I know that uh, there's a few guys there that think they were pretty handy with with the Sharon. Yeah, uh, Matty Wade. Matty Wade. Matty Wade thinks. Well, <laughs> it's actually quite funny because I've, I've played against Wadey since I was uh, I was 15. He must have been 14, and then I went and watched Geelong. Uh, who were they? Geelong played Frio at Cadinia Park one day and I went down and watched and they had the TAC Cup on beforehand and he was playing for uh, Tassie, they the Mariners, the, their underage team or is that the VFL team? Oh yeah, back in the day I think it was the Mariners, yeah. Yeah, so he was playing for the Mariners and kicked seven I think. Shit. Um, from from mid, playing in the midfield he really? kicked seven and, and I, I played the cricket against him a couple of times, like each year you play against him in the underage carnival and I remembered and he was, he was about the size of a Oh, he was tiny still, but um, he was he was good and fancies himself at it still. Um, or Tim Payne again. It must be a Tassie thing. He, yeah, I don't think he ever got the boots dirty. But he, he, if there's no if there's empty space on the ground, you'd find Tim in it. Um, <laughs> and obviously Alex Carey had yeah. had a couple of years at GWS, and um, the boys get stuck into him about that all the time. He's probably the she, only one that can really him. talk about that, I suppose. Yeah, but again, like he he turns up to cricket and he starts talking footy and things like that and 
say, mate, you, like, you, you weren't good enough. Just give it a spell. Let, let, somebody else, let somebody else have a go. That's good. You're listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. Speaking of um, back to your teams, I suppose, I want to talk about Australian cricket because it's something that is, is fascinating and it's only, what, like, how, how big's the squad, the Australian squad at any time? Is it, is it capped? Uh, I think a maximum of 20. I think maybe this year there's 19 on the central contracted list, yeah. That's great. So you've got 19 of the best cricketers in the whole country and I suppose at, a, at such a cricket-dominant uh, sort of country, everyone loves it. It must be crazy because as an outlooker like I feel sometimes and especially this is going to happen when you're playing for your country but cricketers are judged so much harsher than any other sport would you would you agree with that yeah I think I think just because there's fewer fewer number of like at the, in the Australian team there's 11 blokes or mm. 12 or a squad of 19 um, squad of 15 who travel and stuff like that so and it's a national team I guess compared to when you when just in that way comparing it to AFL NRL uh, soccer there's 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 only one national team um, in that regard, so yeah, a lot of a lot of heat does come on, but also you, you reap the rewards of that as well. I mean, with with the amount of crowd that turns up and the and the public interest, and and everyone's got everyone's got an opinion on on what should happen or what is happening with the Australian cricket team. I, I think that's a great thing as well. Definitely. What? How did it all come about for you? I suppose your first time in the squad and then getting your baggy green presented to you. How did all that come about? Uh, my first ever time in the squad was. A T20 game. I made my T20 debut in Adelaide against England, uh, and I'd played really well for for Victoria. I think at the time for for quite a while. Um, I'd, I'd just moved to open the batting for maybe 18 months, two seasons, and and did well and, and got in the side and and then had to bat at number six for a couple of games, which was which was cool and no issue with that. Um, I think I got man of the match in my second game, but then missed the next five. I was dropped for the next five. I think. Uh, someone come back into the side. So I, I carried the drinks for a, a tour of South Africa, a tour of Sri Lanka, which is not the two worst places in the world to tour yeah. when, when, when you don't have uh, much else to do. Um, and then my ODI debut was in Melbourne against Sri Lanka. So I don't, I can't remember... Um, oh, Michael Slater presented both of my one-day and T20 caps. Um but debuting at the MCG in, in front of a big crowd um, was, was pretty awesome in one day cricket. That was that was something that again I thought that I was ready for at the time. Um, but you don't know until you're there. It's like anything. You you think that you're prepared and you think that you're as as um, yeah as well prepared as you possibly can be. And I, and I was probably just a little bit off the mark still. I, I was doing really well in domestic cricket, but then that jump up to to international cricket was so big. Uh, that was probably just out of my depth slightly, so I was just about uh, fine-tuning a few things, and that that come pretty quick, which was which was nice. And then my my test debut to get my baggy green from Alan Border in Dubai was was unbelievable. That was that was something really special. So uh, how that come about was obviously a bit of unfortunate circumstances for for a few guys in Australian cricket. Left a few, left a couple of holes in the in the batting lineup, and uh, being. Having played, I would have maybe played over 100 ODIs by then. Having that experience and and stuff like that, I think um, it was it was good. It was it was a pretty special time and something that I, I look back on on with great memories. I think going forward, um, a few things I would have done differently in the Test matches that I played in Australia against India. But oh, it was it was an amazing time and and I wouldn't change it for the world. The baggy green 
I suppose, and especially in Australia, as someone who like you know watches watches Test matches, it seems like it's just such like the holy grail of cricket. Really, it's something yeah. that everyone wants to get their hands on. And obviously, like we said before, only so many can do it a year, and even over time, you know, only so many guys have it. How special and sacred? I know it's an obvious question, but how special and sacred are those things? Like, is it true like they don't get washed? You keep them in the condition you have. Like, you, you can't yeah. get a new one. They're they're everything to you. Absolutely. I think the only time you get a new one is after you play 100 tests, I think you get presented with a new one, uh, which very rarely would anyone change their... Well, I, I think there's stories of guys who have had their caps nicked and stuff like that. They've, they've been taken out of their bag or, or whatever. So, so obviously you, you need one to play in. Um, but yeah, I think that, that's something really special about the cap to be able to, to say there's only... I was 453rd player to, to play test cricket for Australia. So... It's been over a hundred years, so for that to, um, for me to be one of them, I, I, I hold really dear. And um, the cap, the cap itself, I'd never touched one. I'd always like at the start of each summer, you everyone goes to, used to be to Brisbane now, now Sydney, where you get all your headshots done, you do all your filming stuff for for the summer. So you get a lot of content knocked out over a couple of years, a uh, couple of hours, a couple of days, and. They'd always say, oh, can you put on the baggy green? Like, we'll do a photo on your white. So, and I, that always made me really uncomfortable, so I'd never do one. Um, is that because you hadn't, like, is that even I after you had one, one or you hadn't got it? I hadn't, I hadn't got one, so yeah. I always felt you don't touch it. And, Until you earn it. Yeah, so I remember I was at John Hastings' house one night. Um, this is going back a couple of years, and he'd, he'd played a test match, and it was sitting on the table. And he goes, oh, pick it up. I'm like, I just couldn't bring myself yeah. to touch it because... Because it's not mine. I didn't earn it, um, and because it, it's such a and, and that that might be just me. I don't know about about other people, but it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to have it downstairs. I I don't think I hope that I do, but I don't think that I'll need it again. Um, so I haven't quite got it framed yet, but it's it's pretty special. It's pretty cool to to just to smell, to feel. It's that's awesome. That's awesome, man. And I know that this is not even a nice thing to think about, but what? Per se, does anyone play pranks on the boys sometimes? Like, would you, would you even like play a prank of hiding it, or is that just a no go? Nah, don't. Yeah, don't go there. Really? Don't go there. Yeah. Shit, that's I, I, cool. I, uh, I, I think it was Jackson Bird on, not the Ashes Gone, maybe the one before, maybe an Indian tour, something, something like that. He thought one of the boys was taking the piss and, and had nicked his cap. So, like, and become pretty clear that they hadn't. I'm pretty sure it was Jackson Bird, and whole change rooms upside down, people yeah. looking for it. Um, and that's I incredible think, that you've got something, that, something. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible so, that you've got something that's so like passionate that people don't even stuff around with. Yeah, anything else, cricket bats and stuff <laughs> like that. They're, they're fair game. Like that's the main tool of your trade as a batter. Um, that'd be like going and nicking a couple of spikes out of the bottom of Mitchell Stark's bowling boots and <laughs> and hiding them. Like it's yeah, no, nah. cricket no. bats and stuff like that. Fair game, just baggy green. No, the test doco. Um, it was incredible insight, I suppose. I watched that um, on Amazon. It was unreal to watch. What was it like being a part of it, I suppose, and watching it back? Uh, I've only watched three of the eight episodes. So I watched the first two, and when we when it was premiered in Sydney, um, we watched see, uh, episode seven, which was based around Smith getting hit and, and that part of the Ashes series. So love that. Love the first two. I think... Um, I don't want to watch any more because I've I've got some great memories and also some ordinary memories of of what happened during that time. Like ordinary in a good way. Yeah. Um, like um, my personal form and things like that. I 
looking back on it, I, I know what happened and I know what I felt and what I was going through personally and as a team, what we were trying to achieve, but it wasn't happening on the ground. So I think you, you get all of them. I've got all their memories already. So I, I sort of don't want to watch it and, and then start having new ones that, that I'm like, maybe, yeah, I, maybe, maybe yeah. I should, maybe I should watch it. I think, um, yeah, it's, it was pretty cool though. I mean, Everyone said, oh, it must be weird having a camera in your face the whole time. But there wasn't, it didn't feel like that because the guy who filmed 95% of it on the road was a guy called Andre Major who, he just become one of our family really. Like, and, and you're on the road and instead, of, it's just like an extra coaching staff member or something. You, and he just become, become a part of the group. And you, all, you almost forgot that he had the camera most of the time. And there'd be little ones set up that we, you couldn't see just, just for some pure content and, and capturing things from different angles. So, it was really cool though to to have that documented, and I think such a unique and unfortunate and exciting time for Australian cricket um, on the back of South Africa. I think it was the transition of from Buff as coach to JL. I think was was really really important and, and great that people got to see that other side of of cricketers and and the personalities. But also, it's not just like footy. You you spend five months in pre season, but people only see. Uh, once a week for 22 weeks or 24 weeks and then that's that's just what they think it is and yeah like you know what i mean so yeah. you get you get that i think it gave people a little bit of a different appreciation for what it takes to be an australian cricketer at times when you're on the road for 10 months of the year you're you're living out of a suitcase um you're missing your family you're missing your friends you're missing your mates weddings your family's weddings and, and stuff like that and just just the highs and lows of a of your own personal form, dealing with that while you're dealing with other things, trying to change the cult. Like it, it was a, I think it was a really good, really good for people to be able to appreciate that a lot more goes into to playing cricket for Australia than than just what you see on the field. Yeah, I totally agree, mate. You're listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. Thousands of Aussies trust Aussie Broadband to keep them connected to the world, even when they're on the go. Because as well as reliable home internet, Aussie Broadband also offers flexible mobile plans with super generous data allowances and no locking contracts. Their 100% Australian-based support team are ready to help you make the switch. It only takes a few minutes. Aussie Broadband, the actual Aussie way. Search Aussie Broadband Mobile to find out more. T's and C's apply. When we played footy, you go away for maybe two weeks. Uh, sorry, like a weekend pretty much, then you're home. Yeah. I think like the the COVID now has sort of made people realise how hard those sort of things are because you're speaking about players they were sort of throwing up at one stage or oh, or the boys should go on a um, a six week you know hub and play in a certain state for six week and stay there and they're like oh we can't do that like we'd miss you know our family and friends it's like the cricketers do this you know for pretty much the whole year yeah so that yeah was- I, that was that was something when that whole conversation was going on it was hard to see the um, it was hard to see the point of the players at the time when they're saying, well, no, we'll miss our family and, and friends. Yeah, well, that's also your job. Your job is to play footy. Yeah. But the, the more you think about it, I think as a cricketer, we've grown up, uh, well, playing for Australia, you grow up and that's just what you expect. And, and that, well, that's what it is. Mm. So you've got no other option. Um, so I understand it. When, you, when you're not used to that, when it's not a part of your day-to-day life and you, you go to training, then you go home. You go to training, you go home. You fly to Adelaide on a... Friday night, you play Saturday night, you fly home Sunday. Like, I think that it's, it's just a totally different game, and um, we're lucky we can. We're in a position where most guys can afford to have their partner or their kids on tour as much or as little as they want. So, you, you don't get isolated 
that much. And I think with FaceTime and Zoom and everything like that these days, you're in such a good position that you can you can still stay really well connected. But I mean, when you're on a, if you go to the IPL, for example, you're in India for eight weeks or nine weeks if you if you make the finals. Um, a lot of times the schedule's so packed that it's not actually worth your family coming yeah. over because you you fly in, you play, you fly, you, you spend all your day in a hotel, or an airport, or a cricket ground. So um, there's literally not much else you can do because of the, I suppose the the celebrity of cricketers over there. So it makes it a little bit more difficult at times. And then, but then you might go there on a te- uh, on a yeah to a test tour somewhere and. Um, the coach will sort of want to lock down for a little bit and, and say, you know what, we just need a bit of time to, to really prepare and plan for the next three tests, whatever it is, and so we're going to have no partners. So then you can go 10, 12, 14 weeks without seeing anyone. Um, so I can make it really tough, but also it's part of the job and, and you know what you're in for when you sign up. So I think that's where the differences come in that regard. I know you didn't ask that question, but that, that's just no, the differences. No, it's awesome. It's an awesome insight, and I thought it's, it's definitely something that, footballers would not be used to because it just doesn't happen um yeah. something you touched on earlier uh that was i really want to talk about because i read an article about um that time in your career where you're talking about the form slump that you had uh last year i think it was and basically it was it was awesome really interesting to me because like in my career like obviously there's form slumps and getting out of it and the way people deal with that's so different um i was reading about how there's two things that you sort of did and one was carrying a journal around like a, a notebook that you'd write in yeah. And the other one that I loved and that's like really resonated, resonated with me was like your language and the way you spoke to yourself. Um, can you elaborate on that like and how, I suppose, how was it going through that, that time and how did you bring yourself out of it? Was it someone that helped you with it? Did you like read or was it just something that you thought you had to do? Uh, well, the first one was I think becoming a test opening batsman was not what I really was. Um, so for me, I was, and I went to Dubai, made my test in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, played in Abu Dhabi the second test and was, was quite comfortable in them conditions because it was more of a white ball type game. Um, and then we got back to Australia and people said, well, you can't, you're not going to be able to open the batting in Australia. You, you don't have the right technique. You don't, you haven't made enough runs. And so I almost started to believe that for a, a while. And then, and then it got to the point where I was almost trying to bat like I thought people wanted me to bat rather than you know what, if I'm going to go down, I should go down my way and, and almost almost in that regard, just just throw it all out the window and, and just go back to what's true to me. Um, but I was still new to test cricket. Even though I was 31 or 32, I was still new to test cricket. So I was still trying to impress and trying to become a test opening batter rather than just being just batting like I do. And if it's good enough, great. If it's not, that's also, I'm also okay with not being good enough. Um, that's a part of life. So I think I was working so hard on on trying to change a few things, and when you're trying to change something three days before a test match, then walk out and face Jasper Boomer and yeah. Ishant Sharma with a new ball in your hand. Good luck, because you've got worrying about your footwork patterns, your back lift. What's my head doing? Where's my weight transfer going to be? When should I trigger move? Um, and then you still got to watch the ball, react to it, and, and do that over and over. It's bloody hard. So I think. Um, what I started, I was just doubting myself through that whole period and there was things that I was working on in the nets that I didn't have the courage to take that into a game and I think that since I've, since I've been, one day cricket is a bit different, I've probably got a different, I've been successful in that for, for quite a while I think or reasonably successful so I think that I'm able to make changes like that and, and stick to them because I know that 
if all else fails, I've got a really good base to fall back on. And I just didn't have that in test cricket. So, um, yeah, I was in India. I'd, I'd been through, so I'd been to Dubai for the test and then we come straight back and went South Africa ODIs, test matches, India ODIs, and then we went to India. And I through that whole period against South Africa right through to the second ODI in India, I'd just been shocking. I'd play a big bash game, couldn't get a run um, as well. So it was just, everything was just weighing on me. And I, and I got to the point where I was, I was so fixated on the result, like I need to get 100 to get everyone off my back. Yeah. The World Cup was coming up. Uh, Warner and Smith, they were coming back uh, from their band. So it was like, shit, I mightn't even get a game here and I'm captain of the side. Like, and and that, started, that stuff started to weigh on me a lot. A lot. So it was really... It was really tough in that regard. So I, I sat down with Justin Langer and he just started tell, talking me through what what he... It was affecting my sleep. I, I don't think it was affecting my captaincy. I, I felt as though my, my on-field captaincy and my leadership was still still really solid, but I couldn't sleep properly because every night I'd go to bed, I'd just think about, shit, tomorrow I've got to face Boomerah and Bhuvaneshwar Kumar. These, these two get me out all the time. And I was, I was just... My, my language was really negative all the time. Like I was... I was turning up to a game expecting to fail, hoping that I'd do well. Yeah. And I know when I'm playing my best, when you speak to speak to guys, who, when you speak to Steve Smith about batting, he's not thinking about failing. He's not thinking about what happens if I get out for a duck. He couldn't care less. He couldn't care if he gets a duck or 20. His theory is he's still missed out. But that never enters his mind until it's already until it happens. Like it's, it's only, I'm going to stick to my process and do it so well. But if I get 100, great. If I get a duck, it's okay because I know that the odds are in my favour. Um, and I was just really, my language was really poor on myself. I was always doubting myself, always second-guessing anything that I would do. So my chat with Justin Langer was great. We sat down for an hour in his room um, and just started, well, he gave me a few exercises to do, trying just to just to help, which, which he found helped throughout his career. So one was just writing down, against the opposition, write down how they're going to bowl to you, how they're trying to get you out, and how you're going to play them. And do that for every bowler. And then at the end of it all, write down what you visualise you, the score you're getting tomorrow. And that was, so one day it was, it was like 160. I thought, yeah, I can see myself getting 161 not out tomorrow, winning the game, we're chasing 310. Uh, I'll get 160, we win, no problem. Uh, and, and But it's, it's also just giving you something to, to, chase, yeah. To chase, yeah. But what I found with writing everything down is it got all the negative thoughts out of my head because I, my, your your brain is always trying to fight with your fight with itself, saying, "Well, you're facing these guys tomorrow. They they've got it all over you." And so I'd be up all night going, "Well, how am I going to play them? Geez, I don't know if I can." But when you when I wrote it all down, it was sort of like, "Right, Bhuvanesh Kumar is going to bowl me. He's going to bowl me out, swingers." And he's setting me up for LBW and bold. He'll hang it out there, hang it out there, and then use the in-swinger as a surprise. Or he'll go all in-swing and then use the out-swinger as a surprise. But I'll face it all a hundred times, um, but how am I going to play it? So for, for someone like him and someone like Boomer, my stance is a little bit different. I'll go a little bit more open stance. My, I'll go a little bit deeper and get my head a little bit lower in my crease because they both skid the new ball. So that, that were my notes. And it was amazing once I got that all out for every bowl, it just cleared my mind because it just allowed me to go, as soon as I'd start thinking about the negatives, about facing them and, and them knocking me over, I'd go, you know what, no, I've already got a plan. I've already, I've already thought about my plan, how I'm going to play, 
and just stick to it. If it's good, no problem. Or if it works, no problem. If it doesn't, no issue because you know that that is the right plan but you've just got to commit to it for long enough. And it was probably something that I hadn't done in my test stuff. I hadn't committed to anything for long enough because one, maybe I wasn't good enough, but two, I hadn't given it enough time to, to embed. Yeah. I, was, I was trying to change a, a footwork pattern that I've had for 20 years in three days. Yeah. It's impossible. And, and, then I'd, and then I'd throw the toys out of the cot going, this is bullshit, I can't get any runs. It must be something else. And then you go back to your normal thing and then try and change. And it, it was just a never-ending cycle that you can't win. You can't win doing that. So the, the fact or the, the importance of having time to, to embed something is, is so important. But just, the, just getting that out of my mind onto a piece of paper, whether I, read it, whether I wrote it before I went to bed or I'd write it when I got home from training and you got a couple of hours spare and just sit down and read it before I went to bed, go, right, that's how I'm playing. And it just allowed my mind to switch off. I slept like a baby. I think I got, I think I got 93 the next day, um, and that was sort of the end of of that sort of chapter of it being so, so shit for like six months. Just yeah. being, just fearing getting out all the time, fearing failing, fearing facing an opposition. Like it was just really weird. And but once I got it all out there, then the next game I, I sort of turned up, and you're a little bit taller because you've done all your preparation, and it's all preparation that I've done mentally anyway. But I'd just never written it down. So my brain was always just fighting with itself to, to find, find an outcome. And when that's at three o'clock in the morning and you're, you're walking out to Mark Center at 11 o'clock the next morning, it's not, that's not ideal. Man, that, that is, honestly, that is it's so incredibly insightful. Like I, I can relate to so many of those things. And I suppose I, it's one of those points as well saying, trying to change things like overnight and not realizing that like it takes so long to form a new habit yeah. but again i'll probably touch on is what you, you keep bringing up language and i suppose that's like the main thing that i sort of feel not even to do with sport to be honest because i know that like you know sporting was cool for me but i think more in life like the way i talk to myself now um instead of saying things like you know i'm shit or i'm not doing this yet or i don't want to do that it's like i'm not there yet like I, yep. I'm not where I want to be yet or change like those little triggers I feel for me are like the biggest things that have helped my mindset not just in sport but just in life Would you, is that sort of the thing that you're writing in your book is those sort of changes of, of wording yeah because because I, I was getting to a point where I was just I was so negative towards everything it's like well I'm watching Virat Kohli bat uh, like whether it be in highlights or live out in the field and sometimes it's a pretty special thing to to witness, even as an opposition captain out mm. in the field, it's like, geez, this bloke is on a different level at times. And they'd be like, shit, why can't I do that? Like, we're, we probably train the same amount on our batting. Um, why can't I do that? That's, geez, I'm no good off my pads. So then it was like, well, hang on. Yeah, but also I can't, he can't walk out and hit it 20 rows back yeah. at will at times. Like, if I'm having a day out, I can just, I can smack him for smack a while. Him. Whereas he, he'll be, he's like a surgeon, he'll just, He'll just dice you without you even knowing at times. And, and it's like, well, yeah, I, I can also do things really well. And I think it's appreciating what you can do well yep. and what you, what you need to improve on. And it's not about, I want to bat like Steve Smith or Virat Kohli or Kane Williamson. It's like, well, they can't do what I can do. Yes, they can do some things a lot better, but that's okay because I, I can do that really well. But it, it adds up. And why am I comparing myself to them as well? They're, they're different players. They're... They're players that are, are great test players, great one-day players, and, and they'll, they'll go down in history as, as just all-time great players. That, that's not who I am. I'm someone who I play one day in T20 cricket. Um, I try and do it as well as I can. So 
I think we always try and take things from other people's games and add them to ours. But you also have to understand that when, when you try and add something to your game, it detracts from what somewhere you're good else. At. Yeah, yeah. So, so I went through a stage where I keep getting out LBW, LBW, bold. So, well, I can't play off my pads. So, yeah, that's okay. So you either, but my offside game's really good. So do I become pretty good off my pads and not bad playing through the offside? I think that that trade-off's too big to become, to, to have a real impact on, on my game. I don't think it's going to make me better. What I can do is stay really strong at my offside game, but just manage my weakness as opposed to, as opposed to trying to overhaul it for, for God knows why, because you've seen other players be great at it. Like it, it, you just have to be really true to yourself. And, yeah. and, and I think, yeah, like you said, turning that language from being, um, being negative and really like derogatory on yourself all the time, it, it, it wears you down and, and it wears you down without you knowing. And then it, all of a sudden people around you start to sense that mm. and then might, they might start to, and they might, they might start saying it, taking the piss. But, but you, you when, allow when, it. Yeah, you yeah. when you're talking about it yourself and then they do, you actually start believing it, whether you did in the first place or not. Yeah. And it and it wears you down, it makes you tired, it makes you really tired really quick and then then you doubt everything, then you want to overhaul your game and then you're back to square one. And it's not until you let everything go and you go, you know what, I'm just gonna be really true to, to what I do well. Yeah. I'm gonna keep improving on my strengths, I'm gonna keep trying to chip away at my weaknesses, but don't just overhaul everything because because you've got really poor um, no, I love language it. on yourself. I love it, mate. I'm getting a bit riled up. I want to run through a brick wall and just go <laughs> and get in the nets and smash some sixes or something right now. You're listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. I feel like even today, like for example, I was feeling a bit flat, but because of this whole language thing sometimes, I'll just like, you can trick him. Like I feel like I can trick my mind and I'll just yep. walk around telling myself, you're a mad dog, man. You are absolutely killing it. You're so good. You're like, you, you know, you're chatting to Finchie today. Jeez, you're killing it. Jeez, you're killing it. And then all of a sudden, like, your brain just starts going, shit, you know, you're pretty cool. Like, yeah, you're, you're pretty, good, pretty good. You're pretty good. Like, it's going yeah. well. So that's probably something else that for everyone out there, like, I, I really appreciate the, the language and the mind thing, I suppose. I wish I learned that earlier in my footy career because def- it definitely would have helped me a lot more. Oh, me too as well. And, and I think for me, uh, forgetting the result, I think so, so much time. Like I said before, geez, I just need to get 100. I need to get 100. But you can't get to 100 if you don't get to one. Yeah. Like, and, and you get so fixated on the result of, of getting people off your back. Well, everyone, oh, is, is he going to be picked for the World Cup? Uh, Smith and Warner coming back. Geez, they're going to have to drop their captain. So, well, yeah, you know what? If they do, that's fine. Like, I can live with that as long as I'm true to myself. If you're not good enough, no issue. I've got no issue with being not good enough at something. But what I would have had the shits at if, if looking back now, if I didn't change that around was that I just allowed myself to, to talk my way out of it. Yep. Um, get 100, get 100, get 100. No, no. Wash the ball and get to one. Yeah. And then once you get off the mark, get to 10. And, and you chip away at it like that rather than... Because you forget your process. When, you, when, you, when the result is up here... You forget the, the steps to get there. And I think that you get to a point where you go, well, right, I'm on 20 now. Jesus, how am I going to celebrate my 100 today? Yeah. Am I going to carry on or am I going to be a bit... <laughs> well, and then you fucking... Then you nick one because you're not concentrating yeah. on the process and every ball you need a process. So I think it's so important that you... Regardless of what walk of life you're in, what sport you're in, what if you're in business or, or whatever else, the process... If, if you're confident in the process and that's right, chip away at it because... Uh, who was I? I can't remember exactly who said it, but I said, 
I become a millionaire overnight, but it took me seven years to get to that point oh. of overnight happening like that. Goosebumps. I love so, that, man. So uh, I was like, people want to get rich quick. Yeah. And he, and he said, I got rich overnight, but the seven years that it took me to get to that overnight was hard work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People don't want that. People just, one day, you want to be a millionaire? Right, there's, no one just walks down the street and gives you a million bucks. Yeah. So, so I think that that's how you've got to approach it is you just, you, if, but if, then if you get halfway and you realize that, that there's some stumbling blocks and, and you can do the process better, there's no, no issue with dropping down a little bit to, to keep building on it. Just you don't get halfway out and then throw everything out underneath you because then you're left hanging and you're, and you're in a pretty, pretty shit-ass position. I absolutely love that, mate, and it's, it, it couldn't be truer. Um, and it's something that I suppose you just have to stay on top of because, like you said, that mindset and the language thing, sometimes there are those challenging sort of times and sometimes you think you're never going to get to be that, that millionaire, but the journey is just as important as the destination and, and you've absolutely. proved that right there. Mate, I want to just quickly talk about the Big Bash because it's, it, it should be called the Aaron Finch Bash. It's, it, they're changing the name, I think, um, coming up. But the Renegades, obviously a, a team close to your heart, you've got... I hear that you book out about three boxes uh, when COVID's not on for the family to come down and watch the games. Is this true? None of the boys can get any tickets. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> I, I always get a handful of tickets and, and having a, a really good relationship with the people at Marvel Stadium also helps. They, they look after my family and my wife and my wife's family each game. They generally get a, a nice little box up there, especially in summer. It can get a bit hot. So the, the, I think... Their, their perks of, of being a loyal, loyal um, person to the, to the franchise, I yeah. think, uh, from being there from day one, being a captain from year two, I think every now and then you, you enjoy them perks you're of the to job. That, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd, you're not walking in in your first year and demanding that, are you, unless you're Chris, uh, Chris Gale or something <laughs> like that, but... I think, yeah, there's a, I've got enough. a great relationship with the people enough. there. Yeah, no, that's good. Great answer. Um, on that as well, uh, just you mentioned Chris Gale. Well, in short terms, what, what is the great man like? We hear so much about him. Have you got uh, maybe a quick story for us on him or what's, what's he like to hang around with? Uh, oh, he's a great man. He's someone who uh, I think what you see, Chris Gale, the character, is totally different from Chris Gale, the cricketer. And, and a lot of the times they combine with the, the character you see on the field. But I suppose his attention to detail in his preparation for, say, a T20 game for the Renegades or for an IPL team that he's playing for, I think is extraordinary because you you see a side to a guy that you didn't think exists. You just saw this huge man ripped to shreds, six foot five, who can swing a three pound bat as good as anyone has ever swung it and the most destructive T20 player of all time. And and sometimes you just see, see a bloke just launching sixes, but you don't see the preparation that goes into it. So it wasn't until I played with him that I saw how how detailed he was in that regard and how much he thought about the opposition, the game, um, proper matchups for him in the opposition and, and be able to really go go deep into that. And, and oh, I think that people get people get caught up with with how much he carries on on the field. And that's what people want to see. It's brilliant. I, mm. I love it. Um, it's not me. It's not something that I do. Uh, it's just not me personally. But... Um, I think all the credit to you if you can do it, but the, the, his detail in preparation is is second to none, and, and something that people would probably wouldn't expect from him. It's incredible. Mate. It's a great insight to to him, and like you said, it, what you see and what you get with some guys, and I've always been a big with that on players as well. Like 
it's it's a it's what they look like and then what they are. Like Toby Green, for example, people you know they yep. think it, but he'd be the first bite they pick in a team. Yeah, um, mate. One thing I love to talk about when having sportsmen on, and especially of your caliber, is I love to ask them who's probably the best bowler that you face. Like who would be the hardest guy that you'd face? And I think you probably did touch on that earlier. But then I also love to know who's your bunny. Who's your bloke you just absolutely love to bat to? When you see him coming oh. out, you go, oh, yes, just just be bowling to me all day, please, young sir. Oh, I think the, the two best bowlers that I've ever faced are Murali and Syed Ajmal from Pakistan. Um, they both spun it both ways in, and both bowled incredibly fast. Um, tough to pick. Murali, the more I played with him at the Renegades and then faced him in the nets a lot, I think I got to pick him a lot better, which has helped down the track with picking other mystery spinners. Um, him and Ajmal, like, I mean, we'll, I remember playing a game against Pakistan in the T20 World Cup in Bangladesh, and Ajmal was bouncing the ball literally that much higher <laughs> that, than I thought. Like, he, he'd bowl it, and it'd almost be a half volley, and you're thinking, right, that's six. But you were missing him by that far because it was just bouncing, like he was bowling fast and overspin and everything, and he was really tough. And, but then you've got guys who, fight, who give you different challenges. Dale Stain brilliant competitor someone I love I love facing him it's great fun I've, I've had a f- little bit of success against him in one day cricket he's got me out a few times that's a good always oh, a good battle in T20 cricket and then Bhuvaneshwar Kumar he's probably the one of recent times um, in T20 cricket one day cricket that I've struggled with the most he, he's, he's not quick by any stretch but he swings the ball like that far either way when the conditions are right he swings them that far either way and it's just someone who his length is beautiful, so you don't feel like you can just ever get into a real rhythm. So, um, But again, I've had a, a little bit of success against him as well. He's had more against me, but um, yeah, that's tough. And, and your bunny, is, of, there, is there someone uh, you just love seeing, even if it's a teammate in the nets that you just love hitting for six? Oh, I love hitting Maxi for six. I love <laughs> facing him in the nets. But, I mean, you could hit one, you could hit one 200 metres and he's still got a fielder there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think in general, I... I I enjoy facing off spin. I, um, I've always had a little bit of a license. I've also given myself a little bit of a license <laughs> to try and smack some offies. Um, I probably I play spin overly aggressively most of the time, and um, yeah, there's some that like I love facing Adam Zampa, but he gets me out a lot too. Right. Like I reckon I hit him for a few sixes, and he gets me out in the same game. So um, again, Nathan Lyon, I love facing him in the nets because it's a great challenge. He's a great bowler. Yeah. He also bowls beautiful. That. If he gets it slightly full, you can step and hit for six. But then at other times when you, when you, he bowls it out there and just keeps drifting and drifting, and you go to slog it and you miss it again. By, Myers a brilliant bowler. Love watching him bowl, but love facing him as well. Um, but Maxi, if there's anyone to hit for six, it's him. <laughs> That's great, um, mate. Last but not least, there's one thing I love to touch on here, and I, I'm not sure if it's as prevalent in in cricket as as it is in footy. But do you ever just over your career, I suppose, does a coach? ever just give you a rip and spray like when oh, you, yeah. if you've gotten out or something is there any experiences that you've learned of there that over your career really stand out uh yeah greg shippard uh coach victoria for a long time very successful coach tazzy before that uh, i think he's at the sixes yeah he's, he's at the sixes now he used to give some all-time sprays when you got out in a shield game he, there'd be times when he'd follow you down the race and just he, he was about technique and and i think Growing up, he, well, not him growing up, but Ricky Ponting coming through at Tassie, he was the head coach then. So he sort of thought, well, if Ricky Ponting was that good at that age, how come you all can't? Yeah. And, and you'd get out. And I was, 
I didn't rate my defence much, so I, I went at all out attack. And but he was all about defence. And there's some times when you walk down the race at the MCG, and it's a long walk. After you've walked from the middle down the race, along the back into the rooms, and you just hear this shuffling coming behind you, and you're like, "Oh no, Shippy's about to give me an absolute rocket." Um, used to get some good ones from him. Darren Lehman would give would give sprays. Um, not so much. Like he would just he would just come in and goes what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, you, you're trying to... There, there'll be someone bowling, like an, a random off-spinner bowling, um, and I'll be trying to pat him around and, and get out, like, and I'd get out, and he'd be like, what are you doing? Just hit him for six. Stop stop batting like a pussy, pretty much. Um, so he'd give you a bit of a spray in that regard. Um, the sorry, one- Joe Root. Joe Root, that's probably one bloke I love facing. Um, he, they tend to try and pinch an over or so from him here and there, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoy facing Root because he, he's an off spinner who doesn't spin it the other way. So they're ones that you can you know line that up you, a little you know bit. where it's yeah. going. Yeah. Um, just back on the spray of like the what are you doing call. Oh, it just quickly reminded me of a good memory of. I, I honestly think the what are you doing question is worse than a spray sometimes because it's just so demeaning. I I remember back to one of my first games. I when I was getting um, picked up my first year, and I was really struggling for form. I was playing in the twos, nearly getting dropped to the thirds, and. The next day, like the senior coach, Brett Ratton, came up to me and he's just like, I thought he was going to get a spray and I was probably hoping for a spray. But he just goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like... And it's that tone too, And I was like, it? fuck, that is so much worse because like, it's, yep. he's, just, it's, he's so far past a spray that it's just yep. disappointing. Like, he's, almost, he's almost thinking, why, why am I bothering? I'm why? not going to waste yeah. a spray on you. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of those ones, isn't it? It's like, it's like when, you, when you're old, say, oh, I'm not... I'm not Upset, I'm just disappointed. Yeah, that's worse. Yeah. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Yeah, that's worse. It's like, like Shippy, Shippy would always walk in and, and every now and then he'd just be like, <laughs> and, but just standing like a metre away and looking at you. That's one of those ones where you're looking and you're like, oh, do oh, I, shit, do I, I do? look into yeah. his eyes? Do I, do I keep looking? At like, I just don't know what to do. And it, it's like, and then all of a sudden you'll just like you'll kick someone's bag, and it's like, well, it's not a spray, but it's more intimidating than a spray. But because one, once once you've been sprayed a few times by the same person, it sort of wears off, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and unless it's something that is different all the time, if I keep getting out for playing a shit shot, and you keep spraying me about it, like you're probably wasting your breath. Yeah, I'm probably wasting mine because I've done it more than once. Like I've done it eight times on you. Like. So don't don't be surprised. Because in footy as well, especially like the the one thing that I hated was when the runner came out. You knew they were coming, and you know what they're going to yep. say. Like you're like, yeah, mate. Like you sort of wave them off before they even get there. And it's some poor kid that's can just you being them? told what to say. Can you beat them? Can you can you get over the other side of the ground? Obviously, they can take shortcuts. And it, did you ever just run away from them? Oh, Keep running. Oh, like, well, you can't always. drag me if you don't tell me. <laughs> mate, I used to love coming to the bench, so that didn't work for me. But oh, geez, it's 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 we could go on forever, mate. Last but not least, what's plans for you now, mate? You've been absolutely killing it on the online socials, by the way. I forgot to mention that earlier. You and your wife Amy are just turning into these TikTok absolute superstars I've, re- I've retired from tiktok no you can't retire mate you're just getting started because you, you you're uh, dominating that league at the moment how did it, I, how did that come about well she started doing tiktok she's like oh you got to do one got to do one i'm like no i said the day i'll get on tiktok i said the day we get divorced and then one day one day i said you know i'll do one with you so we started up an account and, and i got the blue tick pretty quick and just took off um yeah it was quite cool actually it's, there's a lot of fun ones you can do i, I like the the ones where you're, you're doing 
um, voice like yeah. movie, movie yeah. quotes and things like that. I, I find them pretty cool. I'm, I'm, you won't find me dancing at a nightclub or a bar or anything. <laughs> I'm generally standing at holding up the bar at the, in the corner. But um, yeah, so I don't like dancing. Amy loves dancing. Uh, I just don't. I don't put myself out there enough, especially dancing. That not like Davy. Davy Warner's gone mental. He's He's putting the 15 up per day. He's lovely. Would that be, if, if, if the cricket was on at the moment and he had to face up the boys in the change rooms, would that be, would he be getting away with that sort of stuff? Or do you think it's because he's, the lack of the bloke sort of getting into you guys at the moment, you can get away with a bit more? Well, the thing you need to understand about Davey is that he could not care less what you think. Good. So, yeah, it, it would not phase him one bit because he's, a, he's grown up in commission housing um, to where he is now. So he's he's ridden some some rough days. So 100%. you could not come at him with anything that will like that he won't care. That's great. Yeah. I love that. I, quickly, just on Dave Warner, I remember when I was living in Sydney for a couple of years. One day I was it was a beautiful day. I was down in Randwick, and I remember I was like walking my dog, and I saw this big like. I want to say Bentley. It looked like I didn't. It looked like a spaceship. I didn't know what it was, and I was sort of thinking like, "Geez, that's a nice car." Like it was going past really slowly, and then it sort of had like this green. This guy, had this green shirt on in the in the thing. I was like, "Far out." That's pretty weird. Like sort of green shirt. Random was, shirt to be wearing. Yeah, it was. It was Davy Warner. It was heading to the SCG in his big, big black Bentley, and it was probably one of the. It was like slow motion. It was one of the coolest things <laughs> I've ever seen. It was that boss. Yeah. Well, he, he traded in the Lambo for that. There you go. Right, yeah, well, confirmed it was him, Finchy, mate. I um, honestly can't thank you enough for your time, mate. Um, the insights into that, I, I, it's it's actually incredible. I'm still sort of getting my head around it, but you're a lot of fun, mate. I can't wait to see you um back out on the pitch, and um, hopefully we can catch up for a, a cold one when all this is over. Absolutely, thank you, mate. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. The show is produced by Dylan Buckley and Luca Ganano. Richard Stansbury looks after the audio and editing. Samuel Kenny Creative is responsible for branding and graphic design. And the show is recorded at 3AW Studios, Collins Street, Melbourne. If you would like to contact my son, head to dylanfriends.com or look me up in the white pages and I'll pass it on. <laughs>